Hey everybody, recording today's episode was super fun as Jim Husson, Boston College's Senior Vice President for University of Advancement, welcomed us on campus to film at the beautiful Cadigan Alumni Center. Jim is one of the advancement sector's most accomplished leaders, and we covered a lot in this episode, including the time he ran a phonathon, the night of one of the worst stock market meltdowns in history. And he also shared his experience collaborating on a fundraising event with the boss, Bruce Springsteen. Jim is so insightful, and it was amazing getting to know him a little bit better. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. Here we go. I'm Evertrue CEO Brent Grinna, and this is The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. Coming in live with the Rays podcast here at Boston College. This is our first on-site filming. We're in the beautiful Cadigan Alumni Center, and I'm joined with uh, by Jim Husson, the Senior Vice President of Advancement here at Boston College. Welcome, Jim. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Brent. Um, so where are we? What is Cadigan Alumni Center? This is our first on-campus film uh, filming and, and really excited to be here, but tell me about the space. So the Cadigan Alumni Center is just what it sounds like. It's our alumni center, but it's the home for our offices, the Office of University Advancement. And the story behind this is actually a wonderful one from a couple of different points of view. Um, BC purchased this piece of property, 50 acres, in 2002 from the Archdiocese of Boston. It provided what was a landlocked university the opportunity to kind of expand its footprint a little bit and to do more things for students and faculty. Part of that involved moving some of the administrative offices over to this campus. This particular space was an L-shaped building that was you know, kind of old and, and not in the greatest shape. And rather than just sort of dust that off, the university decided that it would be great to uh, basically gut the building, put on another wing, create a beautiful atrium space and create a true alumni center. Uh, a kind of home away from home for our Eagles to come back and experience BC and a great workplace for, for all of us. And of course, part of what made that happen was a really generous gift from Pat Cadigan and his family. And so we had a wonderful event in here to celebrate the Cadigan family's gift. Um, Pat's a, that's a longer story, but a wonderful person, a wonderful human being. And this building's just totally changed uh, our ability to both engage with our alumni and engage with each other. Um, you know, you notice one of the things, you, first things you notice about the space is light. Um, it has an atrium space here. All the offices have glass walls. There are a lot of interior spaces that have light coming into it. And I think it supports our values in this office about being open, being connected to each other, and um, working as a team. It's a great space, and thank you for sharing it with us. It's great to have you here. Today. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about your career path, but am I right in that you're starting your 18th year at yep. Boston College That's this, correct. this fall? That's so you're an adult now here, <laughs> I guess? I did. I came when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> um, before we talk about your role at Boston College, which I don't know who the, the longest tenured sort of leading advancement professional is, but I, I'm sure you've got to be up there in, in a sector where there's a lot of talk about turnover and, and so forth. So we can get into that. But I actually was thinking it might be interesting to go back in time to 1987 
when Jim Husson walked into Northfield Mount Hermon <laughs> School for the assistant director of annual giving That's role. right, yes. So at that time, you know, what led you into the advancement space? Did you know what advancement was? Um, I'm just really curious to know that initial spark that, that got you into that first role at NMH and what that was like. Yeah, there's a, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I was a political science major at the University of Rochester mm-hmm. uh, who had, a, at that point, my plan was to go to law school or business school. Uh, I was also a scholarship kid at Northfield Mount Hermon. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. The public, the public schools were kind of tough. And I had the good fortune to go on a, basically a full ride to NMH. And as a graduate of Northfield Mount Hermon, as an alum in college, I stayed active. Uh, I was active as a volunteer for the annual fund um, and active in the kind of community. And as I was approaching my graduation from college, a good friend of mine who worked at Northfield Mount Hermon had suggested to me the notion of, you know, why don't you look at fundraising roles instead of going straight to graduate school? Now, that was a great idea. Now, back then, there was no LinkedIn. There was no even there was no Chronicle. Philanthropy. What was there actually? What, <laughs> there was, what was there back there, then? That's right. Yeah. That's a really good question. Yeah. There was a publication called the Chronicle of Higher Education. And when that came out, I went to the University of Rochester's library and grabbed it and went to the back to the ads. And I sent out a resume to any ad that was looking for a uh, person with, uh, that advertised for needing five years experience or less. The first call I made was to Northfield Mount Hermon. You know, they'd given me this advice, but they had no jobs open. So I sent out, I still have them in my house. I sent out about 60 resumes. I had exactly three phone calls. I had two interviews and I had one job offer. And that job offer was from Gettysburg College. And the day I was going to accept that job, the person who was running the Northfield Mount Hermon Advancement Office called me and said, you're not gonna believe this. Our assistant director of annual giving just quit. Do you wanna come back here to NMH and work? And I said, yes. Not knowing you know, what that would mean for me for the long term, thinking frankly, probably it would be something I did for a few years and I just fell in love with the field. Yeah, so, so tell me about that initial role because I feel like so much of any professional's long-term success can be shaped by the experiences or the relationships, the mentors that were developed early on. So, so when you think about how you started building a good reputation early on at, at, at NMH, what, you know, what, what do you think back to? Oh, I think mostly back to all the mistakes I made. Uh, we love know. hearing about mistakes, so yeah, tell us more. Because you know, there's an assistant director of annual giving at NMH who's just starting this fall, probably. <laughs> yes. So Yeah, a lot yeah. smarter than I am and a lot more <laughs> capable and a lot more prepared. Um, I think the first thing I look back on was realizing that there's a transition from being a volunteer or an alum to being a professional. Mm-hmm. And I think that transition is easy to miss, particularly when you work for your alma mater, which I was doing. So my initial mistakes were all in the realm of thinking candidly that I just knew it all. Uh, And I knew what would motivate people to give because of course everyone loved the school just as much as I did. Um, So that was a big lesson in sort of understanding that, no, there's a different vantage point you have when you're suddenly representing the school as as an advancement representative. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I feel very fortunate to have emerged into this field at a time when there was a lot of sort of, the work was very tactile. Um, So one of my responsibilities was running the area phonathons. And when you ran the area phonathons, 
you were actually carting around big, heavy cases of phoning cards to different cities. You were actually setting up banks of telephones. You were talking to you know, the alums about could we use their workspace. You were training volunteers all live in how to do that. Um, and the other fortune I had was um, my first year there was the uh, year of Black Friday and the stock market crash. And I'll never forget that because that very night we had a phoning, uh, a phonathon set up uh, in Cambridge. We had we were using space at the Graduate School of Education. I can remember this like it was yesterday. And this and Black Friday isn't when you buy a bunch of yes, stuff. Yes, no, that's right. <laughs> that's right. A different that's Black right. Friday. That's yeah. right. This was it was a Black Monday. God, it's so long ago. I can't remember. But it was it was one of those days when the market plummeted. Right. Um, and. We didn't have, you know, again, you have to remember, there's no email then. There was no ability to sort of quickly reach out to people. This is all developing in real time. So we knew we were going to show up at the site, and we kind of figured, well, no one's going to come. Everyone came. And so on the spot, one of the things, and it was just me, I'm this kid, didn't really know much. I think it was my third event. And I had to sort of think about, what do we do? You know, the stock market has just crashed. We have volunteers here who are coming to call people and ask for gifts. And in a conversation, what we decided to do was to have people still make those calls, but to lead with, I'm from Northfield Mount Hermon, I'm calling you as a fellow alum, I just want to check in and see, how are you doing? Did today have an impact on you? And, you know, we were gathered here for a phone-a-thon, but we're not calling about that given the day, and so we just want to take advantage of the opportunity. We're all here together. There's a lot going on in the world around us. We raised more money in that one night than we raised on any of the other phone-a-thon nights. So why doesn't every phone-a-thon lead with that question? That's a really good question. I think, I think the best ones probably do lead with some form of that question. I think the best uh, outreach, initial outreach in any form, whether that's a student caller, whether that's a professional making their first visit for in a fundraising role, whether that's an alumni relations professional, I think the spirit of that holds true today. Mm -hmm. We should all begin with, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. you know, tell me about you. Tell me about your relationship with the school. Tell me about what you care about. And so I think, I think that if we remember that, you know, we're in the relationship building business, um, that, that sort of helps. So you're, you're in that role, really learning on the fly, in the trenches, carrying the, the phone cards around the country, uh, and then your, your career path maybe starts to look somewhat similar to what you hear about in advancement. Some time at Harvard, some time at Cushing Academy in the independent school space again, some more time at Harvard, and then you, you get to BC in the fall of, oh, some time at Brown. How can I forget? <laughs> we, were, Brown. we were there at the <laughs> same right, time, we I think. I don't know if you yes. went to any football games yeah, in like the fall of 2001, of but we were, we were hanging out back then. But, uh, but you go from Brown to, to BC. Could you have imagined in the fall of 2002 that you know almost 18 years later, as we approach 2020, that, that you'd still be here? Did you hope for that? Or uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious when you think about you know, being in that somewhat circuitous early career uh, path that you see commonly in the sector, um, if you foresaw this. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that I would have been sort of bold enough to foresee a length of tenure of this sort, um, because that would have presumed that I would have been able to continue to add value to the mm -hmm. institution over these many years. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that when I, when I took the job at Boston College, I was very much in a space where I was looking for a 
professional home for some length of time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was not coming here thinking this would be a kind of five-year role mm -hmm. or a six-year role or a seven-year role. Mm -hmm. I was coming here really focused on the work. And I knew that what I was being asked to do and take this job was, you know, you know, help be part of a community of professionals that would bring the university out of what had been a very successful campaign into the planning phase and execution of another, what we hoped would be a very successful campaign. And I knew that my internal compass and my internal commitment was to see that whole process mm -hmm. through. So there was never any doubt in my mind that whatever that took, I was in for that. Um, and then over that period of time, I began to feel that there was more about this place for me than just that one body of work. It was really about feeling connected to the community here. And, um, and when you think about the, the lessons, I mean, it sounded like NMH, it was just really cutting your teeth, getting exposed to the sector, dealing with the ups and downs of, of uh, the stock market and, and, and learning about really how to empathize with, with potential supporters. But when you think about the stops at Harvard, at Cushing, back to Harvard, Brown, I mean, are there key lessons or maybe even, you know, key mentors who supported you to equip you to take this opportunity at, at Boston College, which, is, which has been so successful? Yeah, well, I think that, I think that in our work, in any really, in your work, in any work, right, we're always learning, we're always developing our skills. Um, that doesn't stop. But I do think that early on, you're really in the skill development phase. Mm -hmm. And so I think as an as a early stage professional, I was very focused on the skills I most wanted to develop to be able to have an impact in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, and so because of that, I was pretty attentive to looking at roles through the lens of what skills would it allow me to develop. Um, one of my stops, I took a pay cut. Um, to take a job because I knew that that job was going to give me an opportunity to develop skills that I frankly didn't have. I didn't have those tools in my, in my toolkit. Was um, that a hard decision? Uh, it was. I, I was very fortunate in that I have, a, you know, I have a great life partner in my wife who you know, sort of put it to me in a very helpful way when I was sort of wrestling with this decision. And she said, you know, if we had decided, if you had decided you were going to go to graduate school, that would be a financial investment. You know, think of this as a, just a different kind of a financial investment mm -hmm. in, your own, in your own sort of education and skill development. Um, and along that way, Brent, I think that I've had an endless collection of being surrounded by mentors and, uh, and individuals who helped guide me, who provided me with perspective, who challenged me in ways that are important. Um, obvious ones, uh, you know, people in leadership roles at the places I've worked. And you know, quieter ones—people who you know weren't in key management roles, mm -hmm. but who were people of experience, wisdom figures in my life—who were able to sort of be great conversation partners with me. Who are some of those people? I mean, yeah, I, well, a couple come to mind. I mean, you know, when I was when I was first looking for jobs um, coming out of college, I was pointed to a mutual connection uh, through a person in my family with a man named Jerry Nunnally, who's since uh, no longer with us. And Jerry was the head of corporate and foundation fundraising at Harvard. Um, and Jerry was a terrific sort of champion of my career in the early days. Um, somebody who, you know, really encouraged me, called me when the job opening happened at Harvard that time when I took my first job there, believed in me and provided me with great advice every step along the way. Jerry was the first person to say to me when I was looking at going to Harvard, he said, you know, focus on skill development, you know. 
think about you know balancing your commitment to an institutional role, being there long enough to have an impact, but also at the same time recognizing, you know, are you always asking for and looking for those opportunities to grow? And those were Jerry's words to me early on. Um, later on, uh, Susan Fagan, uh, you know, became an incredible mentor to me. Um, she was in a leadership role at Harvard for most of my time there in Major Gifts. Uh, she's somebody I'm still in touch with uh, and somebody who's another great kind of conversation partner a person who um, provided me with advice in specific ways and more general guidance uh, on, in terms of how to approach the work and how to think about what it means to go from being an individual contributor to a manager. And so you have some of those early mentors advance into leadership positions yourself and then at some point things probably start to flip and you start becoming the mentor a little bit and I'm, I'm curious if there are any early relationships that you developed where you actually were the mentor and, and where those people are now or, or what they've gone on to do? Well, I mean, again... Because I'm sort of going through that right now, are you? you know, just as, as we've grown and, and, you know, building relationships over the last few years and, you know, people inevitably go on to do their, their next thing and it's been, um, you know, it's bittersweet often but also really rewarding, but, but I'm curious when that started for you and, and, and what it's like kind of watching other people grow? Yeah, a couple things. I don't think I would ever presume to say who I've been a mentor to. Mm -hmm. um, I, think that, I think that I feel very fortunate to have been surrounded now because I've been in the field for so long by a lot of people who have been colleagues of mine, um, who have been on teams where I've had a, been in a leadership role, who are now doing great things around the country. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not gonna name any by name because I'm leave out a favorite fair. person. I understand. Um, but I also say that, that I continue to learn as much from them. You know, this is something I've been on the, for the past dozen years I've participated in Case Runs This Program, right. the Summer Institute. Yeah in educational fundraising, and I've been on the faculty up there for a while. Um, I was leading it for the past few years. And that's been a wonderful thing, because I, I've stayed in touch with so many of the people who have been to that. I've got to interrupt. I did, in doing my research before <laughs> this, I found Jim's Instagram, and he shared an amazing uh, picture of, I guess, the end of this year's uh, Summer Institute. And, and so I'd love to know more about that. And I've thought at times, if I could go back you know, when I started this company, I had no idea what really even Case was, much less the Summer Institute. And there have been times I've wondered, could we send our new hires to the Summer Institute? I mean, how, how beneficial would it be to vendors to really kind of understand what's being taught to new professionals? And so, not putting you on the spot on, on that specific front, but I am curious to know why you've, you've enjoyed that program so much and if there are early career advancement professionals listening who haven't gone to the Summer Institute maybe help make the case for why they should advocate to you know your counterparts in leadership positions to to get the opportunity to attend yeah I think I think that you know on the, on the question of, of um, professional partners outside the field it'd actually be interesting to think about whether or not there's value in partnering with case to create something specifically for you sure. that involves a deliberate kind of mix um, I did not attend CIFR, uh, that's the acronym for this. I did not attend CIFR as a young professional. Um, Northfield Mount Herman didn't have the budget to, to send us to CIFR or, or the independent school equivalent. And to be honest, 
I had not been terribly active with Case, really? um, you know, prior to CIFR. I had spoken at a couple of conferences, um, and Sarah Pearson, uh, who was the chair of CIFR at the time, had asked me to speak at a Case conference a couple of years prior to her being chair of CIFR. And there was a faculty opening, and she reached out to me and said, do you want to be on the faculty at CIFR? And the first thing I said is, what's CIFR? Uh, and I think that what I've learned um, is the value of CIFR from an attendee's point of view is really twofold. One, you're with 300 people who are in a similar place to you. These are all people who are early stage advancement professionals, not like day one brand new mm -hmm. for the most part, but in for a couple of three years. And so you're meeting counterparts from a variety of organizations across the country who come together for a week at, at Dartmouth. And that's an opportunity to sort of get a different lens to hear other people and how they're approaching their work and their issues. I think a second thing is the faculty are phenomenal. I can say this now in a, in a, in a pretty direct and bold way because I've now retired from CIFR, um, but the, the faculty are truly Who are some of the faculty members? So I mean, is it Peter Hayashida from Cal Riverside, Martin Schell from, uh, from Stanford, um, you know, just to, just to name two, sure. Bowie Carpenter from Johns Hopkins, um, Ginny Wise from Tulane. So it goes, it goes on. It's a, it's a fantastic collection of individuals. So you have this opportunity to be with these people. And then the third thing is it's completely immersive. You're living in a dorm at Dartmouth. By the way, the faculty do too for a week. Um, you're advancement in, summer camp. Exactly, it's advancement yeah. summer camp. You're in, a, you're in <laughs> Hanover and you're kind of all in together and it creates this great spirit. And I, so I think it's this combination of, you know, learning is always best when it's multi-channel. And so in this case, it's live multi-channel learning. You're learning from your peers, uh, each other, and you're learning from faculty. You have a faculty advisor, you're going to uh, elective sessions, you're going to general sessions. And I think there's a reason why people come out of there and decades later still talk about it. And so how many years were you? 12. 12 years. 12 years. 300 people a year. Yes. You probably got 300 thank you emails. <laughs> and so thousands of people that you've built somewhat of a rapport relationship with, um, have any come to join you at Boston College? I mean, what's the, it, it's gotta be overwhelming to sort of stay in touch with, with that many people in addition to your day to day, but, but I'm curious to know what that's frankly done even for your talent pipeline here. Yes, some have. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that cre creates uh, maintains some integrity for CIFR is the faculty are very good about understanding and taking an approach which is we're not there on a recruitment drive, right? So I think that we've, we're very deliberate about that because of course I know as a leader of a group of sure. people, I don't want to be worried that if I send people to this wonderful experience, are they going to be like, is it a job networking opportunity? Right. Um, some of that has happened pretty naturally. Sure. I'd, I'd say what I love the most though is staying in touch, particularly with my advisee cohort mm -hmm. who have been in my groups over the years. So for example, um, this past year, um, one of my advisees from about six or seven years ago um, is now in a management role uh, and sent three of her people uh, to CIFR and asked me if I would take them into my group. And we just had this wonderful time because of course these young professionals had heard stories from their boss about her time at CIFR and our work together. And we made this connection on our own. So that's been, that's been great. So the CIFR alumni community is real. It's very strong. Yeah, great. Um, all right, well let's talk a little bit about as you advanced into more and more senior positions, um, you know, I've never been 
on the side of a table asking somebody for a multi-million dollar gift, transformational gift. And I think, frankly, most of our listeners probably haven't been in that conversation directly yet, even if it's happening you know, with their, with their colleagues. And, I, and I'm curious if you think back, uh, respecting donor privacy and all of that, but, but are there memorable conversations where you really felt like, okay, I'm in the big leagues now, or this is, you know, this, because it's, it's, it really is a negotiation. And, and I'm, I'm always fascinated, you know, it's one thing to negotiate uh, the price of a car, whether the car's $10,000 or $100,000, there's a price on the car. And there's so much more subjectivity and flexibility in, in the philanthropic um, price points, if you will. Uh, but I'm curious to know if there were uh, conversations early on that you think back to when that skill, the skill of negotiation or packaging or pricing or whatever you might call it, um, were, were really developed. Yeah, that's, uh, boy, that's a, that's a three-hour podcast. Yeah. I think, uh, Brent, a couple of things come to mind when you, when you ask that and as I think about it. Um, one is, I think there's no substitute for the development of skill over time in the area of relationship building. And so, and so for me, the practice of being in a role over many years, um, early in my career, of in annual giving, for example, of being in lots of different kinds of conversations with alumni, about having those experiences where you're realizing, you know, the most important question may not be, will you consider this gift? Mm -hmm. It's all the questions that lead up to it. Create a sort of depth of understanding of what really is important to people when they're considering gifts. And I think the second thing for me is the distinction between, you know, you asked about, you know, the idea of a million dollar or a high level gift. And that's, you know, there is some difference, right, to asking for significant gifts. But I actually think the more important distinction is when you're talking about a gift of consequence for an individual mm -hmm. versus a gift that's a little bit more casual for mm -hmm. a person. Mm -hmm. And that's less about the number to the institution or the number to me than about the number to that person. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of my first experiences where I feel like, you know, this was a first moment for me was when I was working at Cushing Academy uh, and I was in a role related to the annual fund but I was asking the chairs of the parents' council there to make a $50,000 gift. Um, that was not the biggest gift that Cushing Academy raised that year. Um, it was not a small gift for Cushing Academy that year. It was a significant gift, but it was really significant in two ways in terms of what I was thinking about in approaching this conversation. These were not alums. They were parents who had been with the institution at that point for four years. They'd never made a gift of that size to Cushing. We knew they'd probably made gifts of that size elsewhere, and no parent at Cushing had ever made a gift approaching that much money. Um, and so that was a gift of consequence. That was a request of, con of consequence, both to the individual mm -hmm. and, to, and to the institution. And that was a moment when I realized I was sort of exercising some new muscles, mm -hmm. um, that it was not a kind of casual gift conversation. It was not a transactional gift conversation. It had to be approached in a thoughtful way, in a way that came from a point of view of mutual understanding. One where I was trying to bring a sense of um, openness to the people that I was talking with, the couple I was mm -hmm. talking with, what their desires were, what their cares were, what animated them, and also representing the institution and why this was important to the institution. And I like that 
um, description, the gift of consequence, because it could be $100 for someone. Emotionally, it could be the same as a million to someone else. But at the same time, when you think about even trying to triangulate around what's possible, one million versus two million versus three million kind of could sound the same on the spectrum of, of what you might solicit someone, but obviously the impact, what you can do with one versus three is really meaningful, whether you map that to financial aid or capital projects or whatnot. And so even as you think about the initial discovery, and I know that it can take a really long time to, to even get to the numbers, but when you think about triangulating around the ultimate ask amount, is it important to present multiple options? I mean, what are ways you can do, you, you can um, challenge what's possible without scaring someone away? I mean, those are, the, those are some of the, the, the tactical insights that I'm curious to, to understand better. Yeah, I, it's, you know, you used a really important word when you said impact. And, and I think that word can't be underestimated in how we think about these types of conversations. And it's about thinking about the impact that a gift can have on the institution. And it's about thinking about trying to understand the impact that the philanthropist wants to have with their philanthropy and bringing those two things together. And I think that, you know, one of the things I've come to believe is that um, the kind of art of asking for gifts involves bringing both a sense of humility and a sense of ambition to the conversation. I think you need both. Mm. You need to bring a sense of humility. I think we all need to bring a sense of humility because that's what allows us to say, we can't presume to know what your passions are, what your desires are, how this fits. You know, we're just getting to know each other. We, we don't want to be presumptuous around that. We don't want to be presumptuous around, is this something that feels right for you? Mm -hmm. um, so we bring humility to that with that kind of understanding. But we bring institutional ambition. We bring that sense of we have ambitions for our institution and through our institutions for our society, for our world, for the world we live in. And we're trying to determine is there a room for partnership here mm -hmm. in those things. And I think that approach can lead to wonderfully uh, positive and impactful conversations. And sometimes it can happen quickly. Um, you know, I shared this book with you, and Bill Campbell was a is a is a story of a person who's had you know he passed away. He's had a, he, but he had an enormous impact on this place philanthropically. Mm -hmm. But Bill's an example of someone who is not a BC uh, alum or a parent. He was an assistant football coach here for a few years, um, and went to Columbia. He was a graduate of Columbia. Was the chair of the board there, and on the West Coast uh, one day early in my career here. The West Coast Technology Council, an alumni association group, was having an event and invited Bill to speak because Bill was well known in, in the Valley and he was a draw. And Bill spoke and I went to that event. And he talked at that event about what BC meant to him. And on one of my next trips to the West Coast, I was traveling with the president with Father Leahy and we were sort of talking about our visits. And when you travel with the president, you're usually thinking about who are the established leaders you want to see. No one had ever met Bill you know, face-to-face -face from BC. And so I said to Father Leahy, you know, what if we try and see Bill? He gave this great talk. He talked about he loved BC. You know, just let's see what happens. And sure enough, I called Bill, and he said, yep, 
I'd be happy to see you guys. And by the end of that first meeting, he made a million dollar gift. We didn't ask him for that gift. He just couldn't help himself because he was getting so emotional talking about what BC meant and he wanted to help. And from there, it led to an unbelievable legacy of giving to this university. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an example of kind of following the relationship and being open to possibilities. That's fascinating. And uh, the book that Jim is speaking about is called Trillion Dollar Coach by Bill Campbell. And so... About uh, Bill Campbell. Uh, about Bill Campbell by Eric Schmidt, uh, Jonathan Rosenberg, and Alan Eagle. Um, and, uh, and I really look forward to diving into it. Um, and so I guess when you talk about the combination of humility and ambition, what happens when that mix is off? I mean, do you have examples you've heard of where, I don't know, maybe people are feeling the pressure and making the ask way too early, or there, there, there's not that humility and a lot of ambition. I mean, how, how do you, you know, what happens when it goes wrong? And, and, and I'm curious how you coach against that here, yeah. while at the same time raising a lot of money under, you know, short time frames and growing year over year and so forth. Yeah, I think that, I think when it goes wrong, um, first of all, there are a lot of things that can cause something to go wrong, and sometimes it's not the fault or the issue with the person, right, that's in the fundraising role right. or, or that. Sometimes it's a dynamic that we have no control over. Um, but I think on the whole, when it goes wrong, it's when we're failing to provide context. I think if we're providing context for what we're asking for, for what we're doing, generally it's very hard for it to go completely wrong. That doesn't mean you're gonna get a yes. Mm -hmm. um, but my measure of is it going wrong isn't so much around do you get the gift or not get the gift, it's how does the person feel about the experience afterwards. One of the things that I like to say to donors is I only have one, I really only have one yardstick for a successful outcome when somebody is considering a gift. It's after they've made the gift do they feel good about it. How do you know? Um, I ask them. I mean, pretty simply. <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think there are other ways in which you know, mm -hmm. but I ask that question all the time. You know, any time I meet with a donor, especially somebody I don't know well, I'll always take the time to say, you, know, you have a lot of choices in the things you choose to support. You've chosen to include BC among your philanthropic priorities. How do you feel about the gifts you've made? Do they ever say not great? Sure. Yeah. And, and do you Rarely. see a common pattern? <laughs> which I is good, but, when, but in the situations where they say, you know what? kind of regret making that gift or I'm not as energized or it isn't exactly what I thought we had talked about. I mean, what are the kind of, I don't know, examples that we can maybe learn from when, when they aren't really excited or feeling good? Yeah, usually if it's not great, um, it usually, more often than not, I think I would say this about BC and about all the places I've worked, it usually relates to did the designation feel right for them? Did they you know, feel like in retrospect, they got the designation for the gift right, particularly around more significant gifts. Now, so maybe in a circumstance where there was a, a really critical priority for the institution that wasn't totally aligned with their interests, but we were able to convince them correct. to support it. Correct, and sometimes it's, it's, sometimes that's just a human impulse, right? You know, people care about their relationships with other people, and if I'm an alum and an alum I'm good friends with cares about this project, I might be more inclined to support it, even though if it's not sort of down the middle of the fairway for yeah. what I want to accomplish. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why asking those questions about how people feel about their gifts is really important. Because people don't always volunteer that. You know, the digging into that becomes important. Sometimes folks need permission to be able to say, you know, I did this, I see that it's made a difference, and I'm appreciative of that, but it's not speaking to what's in my heart. Mm -hmm. um, those are important conversations to have. Got it. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about, in your role, you are the, uh, the chief road warrior in a certain regard for, for this organization, and obviously lots of other people um, supporting you in that uh, work, but when you think about some of the most memorable places you've been or uh, experiences you've had on the road, you just shared the Bill Campbell experience, but are there other visits, places, globally that, that really stand out as being exciting uh, moments in, in your career? Uh, I'll just tell you the first thing that came to mind. Okay. Uh, and I'll reserve the right to say if I thought about this for a few days, All I right, might come with fair. a different answer. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is Asbury Park, New Jersey. Uh, and Didn't see that coming. <laughs> and, and I mean, I've been... Uh, it's a little bit like that Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere Man. You know, I could probably go through that list of cities in that song and, and hit most of them, um, including out of this country, and I've seen some remarkable places in the world. But when you use the term, something that stands out as memorable and exciting, uh -huh. um, Bruce and Patty Springsteen were parents of a BC student, and they gave us the great gift of three benefit concerts at the Stone Pony um, in Asbury Park. It was a really outside-the-box kind of thing, um, they asked us how we could, how they could help. Um, I had noticed they had done this for their kids' uh, secondary schools, and I asked for that. Uh, and they, the first reaction was so funny. You talk about humility. Um, the first thing they said was, "Do you think people would come? You're in Boston." And I say, "Yeah, I have a feeling people will come." Uh, and we had these wonderful three concerts that raised money for financial aid. Their only stipulation was they didn't want anything in their name. Uh, so people made these gifts, um, and every penny of it uh, went to support student financial aid. And it was, it was remarkable on a couple of levels. First of all, and, and where where were the concerts? Where? At the Stone Pony, which at, is oh, where right. it, yep. where where Bruce Springsteen sort of one of his early playing days. And it was just Bruce Springsteen and his what he called his bar band with 300 people uh, in this in this bar performing, and. And, and how'd you pick the 300? That's a tough call. That was a tough call. Um, and so there, there are people still upset. They didn't get the <laughs> nod, right? You've got to hear from them. Yeah, yeah, every, yeah. every once in a while. But people are pretty understanding. <laughs> what we did was uh, there was a gift required to go. Right? Yeah. You had to make a gift to go. Yeah. And the nice thing is we were in a campaign. So we're able to say, look, the Springsteens are doing this because they want to support this campaign. And so to do this in the right way, um, we're inviting people who have been supportive of the campaign at a certain level. Um, and I think most people understood the logic sure. of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were able to sort of do that in a way that, that felt very good. Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't think I had any complaints. Yeah. Well, I bet you had a lot of really happy we did. Uh, supporters afterwards. And, we did. And, um, and uh, that's amazing. Do you recall at all how much was raised? Um, I, I do. We, oh, I don't want to give the specific yeah, amount, but yeah. I mean, all in over the three years, it was over $7 million. Wow. So. And so that would be an in-kind donation, if you will, uh, in that they, they donated the concert, they donated the performance. Have you heard of other creative 
examples of I don't know whether it's celebrities or, or other other instances like that that yeah, stand out? I don't. I mean yeah. it's not it's not our bread and butter, right? right? You right. know, you know, we're more engaged in, you know, in different things and and you know, lots of other sort of experiences. But I think what that reflects is again this sort of value that when we're doing our relationship building work well, we're meeting people kind of where they are. That's where they were, right? You know, for lots of other donors, where they are is in wanting to make a, you know, gift that's a gift of their wealth to have an impact on a program. Um, for them, it was about an experience. Um, and, and for me, you know, I can promise you right now that, you know, I never would have otherwise, you know, outside of this profession had the opportunity to be in that venue with that collection of people having that experience. Amazing. Um, I, I worked for Gillette Stadium in college and Bruce Springsteen played a couple of shows and I got to uh, kind of make my way up to the stage but not quite as intimate there as the uh, the Stone Pony. Um, I think as we start to conclude the conversation I'm curious to know you know during your time at, at Boston College the world has changed technology is, has reshaped every sector higher education is feeling all kinds of pressures and so forth but you always seem so genuinely um, optimistic and um, committed to, to, to this institution. I'm curious what keeps you going and how you've been able to maintain that level of excitement and enthusiasm, which without, I'm sure it would make the donor conversations and leading the team a lot harder. So what's your perspective on that time at Boston College and where the institution is today and, and also in the context of the changing higher education landscape? Yeah, it's a good, really good question and an important set of issues baked into that, Brent. Um, I think for me, what keeps me optimistic is I am a firm uh, and evergreen believer in the transformative power of education, um, both on individuals and on society. Um, my parents did not go to college. My, my grandmother came to this country when she was 16 years old because she was living in a place where women could not be educated and she didn't want to have a family where her daughters could not be educated. Um, and so instilled in me from a very young age was this notion of just how transformative education is to a human being. Mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly been the case in, in my life. Um, then you see, I think, the impact that certain institutions can have on the world. Um, in a place like Boston College, and you know, this is true of many places, that bring to their sort of approach to education a sensibility of service to others. You know, the Jesuits have this phrase that's associated with them of being men and women for others. That notion of educating students in a way that doesn't just provide them with a toolkit, but provides all of us with a compass in our pockets to think about how do we want to make a difference in the world um, is also pretty powerful. And for me, I think it speaks to another part of your question, which is, you know, where are we today and where are we going? And I think one of the things in educational fundraising in particular, you know, there's lots of fundraising for other nonprofits, but I think in educational fundraising, we have to remind ourselves that we are a cause, uh, you know, and I think that for many other forms of nonprofits, that comes a little bit more naturally, um, that notion of, of we're a cause. Mm -hmm. And I think education, has come to a point where it can just feel kind of bureaucratic, mm -hmm. very institutional. And I think the more we can do as leaders in our great universities, our great colleges, and our great schools across the country at all levels, 
the more we can do to remind people that we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We are part of the fabric of a society that is made better because of these institutions. We are part of a um, series of handoffs generation to generation. Um, it excites me uh, and it pro does provide me with optimism because I see the great work that our alumni are doing in the world yeah. and I see how important that is. No, I, I agree and I think the tension that we all feel is that impact is unquestionable. I've benefited in many of the same ways that you have as a first generation college student and um, at the same time with the digital transformation that's happening I understand why people are questioning should it cost $70,000 a year to deliver what you know could be potentially delivered in a much lower cost digital format and, and, and I'm not sure what the answer um, is and, and I know that there's a lot of extremes um, out there right now but uh, you cannot question the impact education can have when, when it's done right. No question. I mean, I think that one of the most important uh, sectors of, of the educational field going forward are community colleges. You know, our, our colleges that are offering more online experiences. Mm -hmm. and, but I think that's a continuation of the application of our root purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think of that as, I mean, it's disruptive and I think a healthy way. Yeah. I think it is asking those questions around how do we continue to deliver an experience that is valuable, mm -hmm. that does transform lives, and that also meets different needs that different areas of our population may have. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I was having a conversation recently with Steve Hall over at Boston University, and it's related very much to this how are you doing question, back to the beginning of the conversation. Um, thinking about ways that advancement can help support ongoing growth and success of your constituents that if if you have a conversation with someone and you say how are you doing and they say hey I've been thinking about going back for my masters are we equipped to route that individual to better understand what sort of masters programs or online degrees are available at Boston College and how do we think about more of that lifelong learning potential and um, while focusing on our participation rates and annual giving revenue and major gift revenue are there ways that we could almost I mean the for-profit world we call it cross-selling you know yep, how yep. are we cross-selling somebody from um, one product to another product but are we cross-selling somebody from an annual giving conversation into our enrollment you know funnel and and I'm curious how how is that a conversation that's being had in the sector or, or at Boston College or does it does it make sense to think about it that way? Yeah, I think it does make sense to think about it that way. I mean, you must have examples where if somebody is meeting with a fundraiser and they say, hey, I'm thinking about buying season tickets or going back to school, that there's some sort of referral mechanism in yeah. place. But, all all yeah. the time. And I'm, I'm you know, BC may be an outlier in this respect among the kinds of universities that are in our cohort because we really are a pretty tight-knit community. Mm -hmm. um, so there aren't a lot of uh, cross-unit barriers at BC. No silos uh, at BC? <laughs> I don't say no silos, but very few. Uh, and so, you know, Joy Moore, who was the head of alumni relations, is now the head of BP for student affairs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're a pretty collegial place. Yeah. Uh, and we have a value system around being about BC. You know, that, that phrase that's used at, at, at sporting events here, we are BC, um, is something that we take pretty seriously. So I think at a place like BC, Brent, 
we, we may be a little bit of an outlier because those things happen naturally all the time here. Um, you know, I think people in this organization really do listen for those cues and are, I'm constantly getting questions around this person asked about this, who can mm -hmm. we point them to, mm -hmm. how do we do that? Mm -hmm. um, and we try to take that approach of being helpful whenever we can. Great. Uh, are you hiring? <laughs> I am hiring. Yeah. Uh, we're growing and, uh, and we'd welcome anyone who wants to be part of this uh, remarkable place. That's great. Uh, and uh, we will try to include a link to the uh, Boston College uh, Advancement Careers page here as well. I guess my final question would be, um, as you think about key lessons or, or observations throughout your career for our listeners, um, it's hard to distill it down into simple talking points, but anything stand out when people sort of say, hey, you know, Jim, how have you done what you've done? Or what advice do you have for me? What are some of the common themes that you tend to, to share? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, they're the simple ones that are so tried and true, they, yeah. they, they probably risk sounding a little trite, but, but for me, it, it really is just about a few core principles. One, it's, it's understanding we're in the, we're in, you know, our work is about human relationships both in our organizations, with our colleagues, with the people we work with, um, the people who work for us, the people who we work for, and outward facing. Um, and so understanding that, particularly in fundraising, uh, you know, philanthropy at its core is a gift of love, right? It's a gift, it's an expression of one's humanity uh, in terms of the reason why we make gifts. And I think it's important through, as we've become more sophisticated, which has been very helpful, as we become bigger, as we become more complex, to not lose sight of that, mm -hmm. that importance of really showing and demonstrating an interest in understanding people for who they are and what interests and motivates them. And I think the second thing uh, is just the importance of maintaining some sense of humility, some sense of self-awareness linked to a commitment to skill development. Um, that I think is the X factor when I think about, when I look at people who have, I admire because they've had such successful careers and they're having such an impact and I try to emulate because I see the role they're having. You know, one of the things about this business is that I love is there are all sorts of types of people who are successful in our work. Um, from hail fellow well met people to people who are more introverted. Um, and, but I think the one thing that most people have in common who are successful is they tend to be very committed to their craft and very interested in understanding what is it going to take for me to become better at my craft and asking those hard questions, seeking out coaching, seeking out feedback. Those are, I think, the, the, the values that I think win the day still today for people who seek to have really impactful roles in this field. I really appreciate that perspective and, and I do want to say Having been on the entrepreneurial journey for about nine years now, I can remember meeting you really early on and, and I knew very little about advancement and we had not uh, <laughs> accomplished much at that point, but you were uh, always willing to offer your perspective and I feel like uh, you always wanted to know how I was doing and I'm grateful for that and it's been a pleasure getting to know you. This has been a fantastic conversation. I know that our listeners are going to enjoy 
um, hearing your perspective, and I just want to say thank you. Well, and you're welcome, and Brent, you've had a terrific impact on this field. You really have. You know, the work that you've done in your organization uh, has really opened up so many new possibilities for how we think about um, connecting to our, our alumni. And one of the things I've noticed in you as an entrepreneur, somebody who's built the organization, in, in this book on Bill Campbell, one of, the, um, one of the observations that really sticks with me is it said that one of the things Bill knew was that you can't be a leader if you're not also a great coach. Uh, and you're somebody who's also taken that approach to coaching people in your organization, and I, and I value that, so thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. Cheers. Go BC. <laughs>